This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Oli Tikkanen. Welcome, everyone. So this is part two with Pronwyn Clark. And in the first part, we had a very interesting discussion about self-reporting, device-based tools, and how combining these and using Bluetooth technology, GPS, we can get more context about physical activity and sedentary behavior. We can learn about the location indoors with Bluetooth and location outdoors with GPS. Technology is not yet fully ready, but but getting there. And then with the self-report, we can learn about feelings we can learn about who persons are with but so uh, welcome for the second part Fronwin it's nice to have you here and and you are working as a as a president of international society for the measurement of physical behavior could you tell more about the society Yes, so um, our society, which is ISMPB for short, um, actually is a fairly new society. Um, It grew out of um, out of um, the the international conferences for the ambulatory measurement of physical activity and movement, or ICAMPAM, and there were a a couple of ICAMPAMs run. that were around really conferences around getting people together to really solve these problems of how we're going to measure physical behaviour. After a couple of conferences, um, there was a real interest in maybe we should have a society, um, something that um, gives more than just um, a, a biennial conference. And the society really has a focus on um, bringing together people from multiple backgrounds, so researchers who work in public health or in clinical fields, and also uh, engineers, um, device developers, um, and industry folk. Um, So it really has that multidisciplinary focus of bringing together um, people um, to sort of tackle how we're going to measure physical behaviour um, and how we're going to advance that that field of physical activity research, um, also sedentary behaviour research and sleep research um, using wearable devices or ambulatory monitoring. Yeah, that's that's very very nice to have such a society and the events. And you probably haven't had the events in a while due to COVID, but you will have this year. Could you tell more about this year's uh, conference? Yes, so this year we're going to hold ICAMPAM in person again. So we had been holding them every two years, um, but we were not able to hold it last year um, as an in-person event. We did have a small virtual event last year um, just to keep the momentum going. Um, But this year we're back in person, um, but we also have a hybrid event this year uh, with a virtual component to our event as well for those who are not able to travel. We're really lucky this year we're going to Colorado. So we're going to be in the mountains outside Denver um, at a place called Keystone. um, And we'll have our physical meeting there um, and we'll have a a three-day event um, plus a day of workshops. 
Um, we have some really great uh, speakers coming um, from uh, lots of different backgrounds. Um, and we've got eight keynote speakers um, who will be speaking in person and we'll also be recording the first day where we will have um, at least three key keynote speakers that people are able to hear virtually as well as uh, some content of our symposia and um, and our um, in-person presentations. So some of our listeners might be thinking, is this a conference for me? Who, who do you think it's the best fit? We have probably listeners from different fields and with different backgrounds. Who would you really recommend the conference? It has a wide interest. So anyone who is working in research uh, with uh, physical activity or sleep or generally measuring physical behaviour and they want to they want to work out, well, what is the best way I can do that? What's the cutting edge way that I can um, I can measure physical behaviour in my research? And so that's the people who are wanting to put measures into their actual um, studies. So we have those people who might be interested. And uh, we also have people who develop measurement me methods um, who can come and um, talk about um, the type of um, new methods that they've developed um, and and how well those methods work so that they're able to speak to people who are actually using them in their research studies. We also have those who come and speak about um, sort of more software or algorithm development um, and um, so that, you know, researchers who are working in the field, how am I going to actually make the most of um, using the data that you get from from wearable devices um, and so we have that those sort of three fields uh, as well as people from industry who are wanting to kind of promote something that they've um, they're able to um, to sell as well so there's there's a huge variety of people that come along to the conference but it's a real intersection between um, sort of development of measures users of measures and how they use them and um, and sort of industry as well. And how, how do you see the measurement of sedentary behavior, physical activity and sleep? It's quite common in certain fields of research. Where do you feel that what fields of research are underutilizing? They are maybe not using either the self-report or device-based. What do you see as the kind of with the big potential that are not measuring? yet at the moment too much. So maybe not measuring or just starting to measure. Um, we've got a huge growth in people um, using these for sort of examination in sort of clinical trials or drug trials, um, um, really industry-based, um, evidence-based um, effectiveness of, of um of trials, I think this is a really new area, and in fact, one of our um, our invited keynote speakers is Dr. Matthew Diamond, who's from the um, Federal Drug Administration in the US, um, and he's talking about how we can um, we can use um, devices in clinical investigations of new medical products, and and I think this is an area where um, where researchers in physical activity can really um, lend a lot of um, good information and how best to do to, to carry this out um, rather than just pulling a device off the shelf that they know nothing about how to use and and maybe talking a little bit about the rationale behind using using measurements in clinical and drug trials so could you explain for for me and the listeners why is it important to use this kind of advanced technologies in these trials 
I think because um, the information you get is is objective. It's not something. It's not someone telling you how they feel or how much walking they're doing, um, or how um, what how their physical function is um, in terms of. Um, you know, how well they feel, um, people who have sort of a, a clinical um, disorder that that affects their movement, um, having a, an actual objective measure of, of how that is changing. Um, so I think, for example, people who have, say, um, Parkinson's disease, actually having an objective measure on how um, their ease of movement or their um, frequency of movement is changing based on, on say, a medication they're taking I think that's really important uh, rather than just asking them because it's very hard for people to remember. I know having done work on um, questionnaire measures for people to remember um, how much movement they're doing or how much sitting time they're doing. So having that ability to use ambulatory measurement is really going to advance the field. And and is it now mainly done with the self-report that, for example, if you want to test the effectiveness of, of sleep medication in a trial, they are actually asking how how did you sleep how much did you sleep and not not actually measuring it so they might measure but for short term um, and so um, th- that this is another advance too in that um, so I'm thinking for example for sleep you might only go in for an overnight sleep study now that's not that's only going to tell you about that night and it's only going to tell you about what you did in that sleep study environment but having sort of uh, um, well I guess sleep's not ambulatory but but having a measure that you can use within your own home and and you can use for a longer period of time is going to give a much more information on how how so for example sleep has actually changed yeah i i've been once in a sleep study myself and there was a baseline and then follow-up and i remember that i i was actually sleep deprived in the second point for for some reason there was something happening i slept like like so like like a baby and i don't know if i destroyed the whole research setup because i was I was sleep deprived. They they asked it, but I was just thinking it was a small study of maybe ten participants, and I knew that I just slept for other reasons so deep. So I I think that's it's a good point that we really need more data than just one one night in the lab. It's it's much much more needed. How how much do you think we need data? Often the physical activity is measured seven days, weeks are different. The weather are different. For example, it might be rainy week. It's probably different than than a sunny week. How much do you think we need data to really get the optimal results? So I think there are smarter minds than mine working on this, um, and I, and I know that um, that people have done a fair bit of research on how long you should wear um, wear a device to get um, a picture of usual behaviour. But if you're in an, an intervention that's changing all the time, that may actually be quite a much longer period um, that you need information about because usual behaviour is changing. So, you know, if we say we only need seven days, eight days of monitoring to get a picture of usual behaviour, but people's behaviour is changing over time, then we probably need much longer period of, of information um, about their behaviour. And then that gives an extra um, layer of difficulty in that what do we do with all this data? How do we manage all that data coming in from uh, from a measurement for a, a longer period of time? Um, and, and that's where we need our experts in sort of data management and um, 
and and how to make sense of all the data out when it does software engineers and, and our experts in sort of algorithm um, development and that sort of thing. Yeah, so so my question a while ago was about underutilized research fields and you said the clinical and drug trials. Do you see other fields that, that are kind of underutilizing these? I don't know. I, I, one that really comes to mind, and, and this isn't um, necessarily fields, it's more in um, our reach into other, um, into sort of our lower and middle income countries, um, where the ability to um, to use even the methods that we have um, is limited because of the cost of these things. Um, and I think we're really underutilized in that way. Um, and And one of the ways I'd like the field to develop is to um, is to come up with um, more inexpensive methods um, for measuring physical behavior um, that can be used worldwide so that researchers have that um, that capability um, in in not just um, a, a sort of wealthy um, western countries we have quite a bit of bias in the in the knowledge that we mainly measure from people from well uh countries with the good income and most of the people work in the office and not physical jobs so it's it's very different it, for us it shows that sitting is not good and and we need to be more active while in some countries it might be even vice versa and we need to know that information and we don't yet yeah yeah that's that's true and you you mentioned that you have eight keynote speaker one is from track administration and what are the other teams of the keynote speeches so we have a couple of speakers who come from a, um, a phys- uh, sorry a public health background um, so we have my Chinapore who's from um, Amsterdam and she's been a, quite a um, good researcher in physical activity research um, I think mostly with children um, and she's going to talk about her experiences in using um, activity monitors in a physical activity research. We've also got Aimin Lee, um, who's from um, Harvard Medical School, and many people will have heard of Aimin. Um, and she's going to talk about using accelerometers in those really large-scale studies um, for, for epidemiology. We've also got um, some speakers who are coming from um, from more clinical backgrounds. So we've got Robert Moshal, um, whose interest is in multiple sclerosis and using um, measures, um, using wearable measures in for um, looking at function in multiple sclerosis and other neurological diseases. And Faye Horak, who is um, has an interest in clinical um, areas with Parkinson's disease. Um, and Steve Rabinovich in older adults uh, with falls. So we've got some sort of more specific populations as well um, there. And then we've also got Rick Troiano, um, again, back to sort of a public health and epidemiological field, um, who's worked for many, many years at the National Cancer Institute um, and was really involved in using accelerometers with NHANES, um, so one of the very earliest um, really large population-based studies using accelerometers. And he's going to give us not such a history lesson, but a look back through the ages of using accelerometers. So that will be great as well. And we have one more person looking at dis- disease detection too, um, and that's Jesslyn Dunn from um, Duke University. And she's going to look at um, can we use these wearables to detect early onset of diseases, which I think is another area where, where we really um, have a possibility of developing in the future for using wearable devices. 
so very interesting uh, keynote speakers from different you have neurological conditions large scale studies and and wearables kind of future of wearables in in detecting onset so sounds sounds like a very very good event what what else do you have in the event you already mentioned that it's a hybrid what do you have uh, student student things what, what else do you have in the conference yeah, so um, we will have um, we'll have student prizes. So there are prizes for students who are um, present in person, um, an oral presentation. We have a prize for a poster presentation, and we have a prize for um, for a virtual poster presentation too. And I believe part of their prize they will get some money, but they'll also be part of this podcast. So that's something to really listen out for in the future. And I think a really great thing, um, as I mentioned, Ollie, this is my first podcast and I'm definitely a late beginner, um, but it's a really good thing for people who are just starting out in their early careers to be involved in something like this and um, and really start getting their research out there to a wider audience. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian, a research device that has been shown to be valid in tracking sitting, standing, physical activity and energy expenditure. Furthermore, Fibian has been shown to be valid categorizing physical activity into light, moderate, and vigorous intensity. In addition to scientific accuracy, Fibian provides automatically produced and easy-to-understand reports for research participants. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com research. Fibian. From researchers to researchers. Yeah, and, and with this podcast, we, we want to support the early career researchers. We try to get them also as, as guests. So we kind of hear, hear also the researchers in the beginning of their their journey. And I think it's a good, good uh, experience talking about your research findings. And, and you never know, somebody might might find out that they like doing this and they might do their own podcast. We had like one... One example, like uh, students were just kind of, they had to do one podcast episode for their kind of student work and they got excited. So they, they made their own own podcast. So I think it's it's kind of nice when some people notice, oh, I can actually do this myself and, and just publish publish the episode. So I think it will be very, very interesting. Could, could you tell the basics of the conference? You already mentioned the place, but maybe if you if you repeat the dates, the location, and and how do people find find more more information? More information. So I've just got the dates beside me. Um, so where the conference goes from the twenty first to the twenty fourth of June in twenty twenty two, and as I said in Keystone, Colorado. Um, if you want to. Um, to join, come along in person or join um, the virtual uh, conference, um, really just Google ICAMPAM 2022. There's not that many ICAMPAMs out there. It's a very unusual acronym and so you will come up with that first um, and that will give you on our website a whole lot of information about our speakers but also about the workshops that we'll be running, uh, how the program runs. Um, in brief, it'll be a day of workshops and two and a half days of keynote presentations, symposia and um, oral presentations and posters. And there's still an opportunity if you want to present your research um, to put in um, uh, for a, um, an abstract, although only a couple of days. Our abstracts close on uh, the 20th of May. So um, 
it would very you'd have to get one in pretty quickly um, to get an abstract in. But still worth coming even if you if you um, aren't able to to put in an abstract because a lot of good information will be presented. So anyone listening and thinking, check check the website. I I believe Colorado will be will be a nice place to be. Uh, so what what are you presenting yourself in the in the conference? So I'm going to present, um, as I spoke before, my interest um, is in getting um, getting self-report information um, as well as um, wearable devices. And so I'm talking about um, some data that I collected um, from people wearing a thigh-worn monitor. Um, so we're able to tell when they're sitting um, standing and stepping, um, and they've had prompted um, questions on their um, phone asking about their mood um, and also who they were with. But I'm going to be presenting about the mood dimensions and how that related to um, to whether they were sitting, um, standing or sitting for long periods of time uh, and how much time they were stepping. And we had some some really nice findings. Yeah. That, that will be interesting. And if we go to the early career thing, um, jump onto those, uh, you have had a somewhat a research career already. And, and what would be your best tips for young researchers who want to work in academia, academia and build a, a research career? I think um, my... First and foremost tip is to um, is to talk uh, to other researchers, um, and this is not just your colleagues around you, but but to not be afraid to go and speak to uh, more experienced researchers, uh, those ones that you admire their research. I've found that um, more experienced researchers or more senior researchers are really um, quite happy to speak to early career researchers and and this gives an opportunity for you to express your ideas because as an early career researcher your ideas can be really amazing to that senior researcher as well but also to develop a rapport with with someone who has um, spent more time in research and possibly will provide that kind of mentoring relationship for you. Yeah that, that's a good good point talking to other researchers do you have any 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 way how how to do it of course if you are physically in your department and you you meet someone in a coffee table it's easy to start discussing but researchers are are busy and arranging a time for a call might be might be difficult what what would you say as a way of starting an informal discussion how how do we do it well, I'm a big fan of conferences, and I think it's been very sad that we have not been able to have those um, in-person events in the past in, for the past couple of years. Um, because at a conference, you're away from your desk, and so you're you have that opportunity to have those informal discussions or those discussions with researchers from all around the world. And I think it's a really a great venue for stimulating um, those those conversations and those ideas. It's not always possible to go to conferences. They're expensive. Um, so um, I think that making the effort to attend things, to to attend talks and 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 
to ask questions um, and be involved, um, actively involved, like being an active listener in those sorts of events, I think that's a really good way to make a connection with other researchers, whether it's the researcher who's giving the presentation or, or other researchers who are asking questions um, as well. You, you can make a connection that way too. Yeah, and actually, I have maybe I test my idea with you. I have had an idea for maybe six to 12 months that I would make uh, in Twitter, you have these things called rooms. I don't know, most people don't notice it, but it's, it's basically an audio space, an audio event that I could build that it's, for example, on Thursdays at, at 2pm uh, Greenwich time, for example. And anyone can just click on Twitter. They jump there. When they come in, their microphone is muted. And there will be some amount of people discussing. And then you can unmute yourself and take part in the discussion. You can jump out. So I'm thinking that maybe I should make a two-hour slot where we could discuss, I, I don't know, anything anything related to research or it would be just researchers it could be early career researchers it would be nice if we would get some more experienced researchers somebody could ask for looking for a job somebody could ask for advice or or whatever what do you think do you do you think this could could work yeah i think and and searching for these ways of doing things in a virtual world is i think really important um what I do find, and I think it could work, but what I do find is that um, when you have a number of people and you're jumping in to say something, there's all these false starts. So if there's some way, I know the hand up doesn't always work, but if there's some way of kind of you press a button, like almost like the buzzer, so you're in to say something and no one else can jump in if you've pressed that buzzer, I, I don't know how you would manage that. Yeah, and, and I asked about the best tips for young researchers. What would be mistakes to avoid early in, in a research career? What, what not to do? I think it's a real mistake um, when um, researchers start out and they just follow what they've been told to do completely. Um, so they're given a topic that they should research and they're told how to do it and they they don't step out of that um, that that kind of um, pathway. I think that it's really important that you right from the beginning start developing your own your own ideas and be, and expressing your own ideas um, and realizing that while sometimes they might be a red herring, um, it's really important to have that ability to to think and come up with with things out of the out of that. Um, that kind of out of the box if you know what I mean yeah yeah that's a good point and I, I learned that in some countries when you applying for certain positions they might be calculating the amount of articles done not with your supervisor that your supervisor is not included so it's important to do studies also in in some countries at least that you don't always have the same person there supervising you yeah, and and you said that Neville Owen was your supervisor, and I, he has been also in the podcast. And I asked him that what are the tips for building a research career, and his tip was that be consistent, that kind of chosen theme, and and stick with it. That don't don't go 
all over the place that you you are expert on something and i asked like would leonardo da vinci then wouldn't get the phd position from from him and and maybe maybe not so i think that was that was interesting <laughs> that actually that's very funny that neville should say that because he was definitely one for dropping the red herrings that would send you off on a tangent so and that maybe he was just testing us but um Yes, developing your own, but your own area, not necessarily what someone else has told you to do. I think that that's important. Yeah, and and then you are a woman leader. You have had a successful research career. Do you have any any specific advice for being a woman researcher in academia? I think take advantage of of the. Um, I, I'm finding that there are more, and this it won't be the case for all. Um, all universities um, but there are more opportunities out there that really are specific um, for for women um, and I think take advantage of those and don't feel guilty about it um, I think you just um, you 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 follow your research career and you take all of the opportunities that are available to you and I think don't necessarily see um, see some of the things that are are given opportunities that are given to you, such as flexible work or part-time work, don't see them as um, as necessarily being bad um, or being detrimental to a research career. I think that a lot of people have very successful research careers working. I have worked a lot of my research career part-time and it hasn't been to my detriment at all. Um, so I think taking those opportunities and, um, and making them work for you um, is a really important thing to do. Mm, yeah, good good points. And how did you feel working part time? Because sometimes working, for example, just eighty percent, you get just eighty percent of salary, but still, actually, you need hundred or hundred twenty percent of work to do. Did you feel that your workload really decreased, and did you have to do actively something that the workload was actually decreasing? I um, I have. Um... I have been fairly good at just doing what I think I'm capable of doing. I wouldn't say in the part-time hours, and, and I know um, that this is the case with most people in academia, that don't just work the hours that are set of you. Um, so I definitely don't do that, but I do do less than a person who works full-time. Um, and so I think just making sure that you can um, you can parse out what you would what you are doing and and plan you have to be a good planner plan out what you are doing to fit in for what would be expected perhaps um in the part-time hours is is important but there are advantages to working part-time as well because you have longer so i've had longer to complete my fellowship than um than i would have if I'd taken it full time. And that means that there's, you know, lead time for papers and those sorts of things um, haven't been as much of a problem for me because I'm I'm working part-time during that time. So there's advantages to working part-time as well, except for earning less money. That's not an advantage. And and how do, how do you see being a researcher? There's a lot of tasks. There's, I, I think, quite a lot of burnout. And, and then for women, there's also family life maybe small children especially when you are at the time when you would need to show your skills build the cv that you can get 
permanent position, a professorship. How how do you see this situation? Do you have any any ideas how the situation could be improved? Yes, yeah, so um, I think this is a real problem because the time that you're working really, really hard at the beginning of your career, that is often the time when people have children as well, which take up a fair bit of time. I think it's really important that if you're going to have children, you have a really honest discussion with your partner about what who's going to do what, um, but still to remain flexible um, because sometimes that doesn't work out. So um, have, have an honest discussion about what help you're going to need or what um, help they're going to give um, and then um, and th- but then be flexible if something goes wrong. I think that's really important. I give this advice though because I didn't actually do it. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's really good advice um, and I think probably what I've ended up more doing is going, oh my goodness, I need you to do something, you know, at the last minute. Luckily, my partner's quite understanding so that works out quite well. But I think um, I think those years where you are in childering, and I, and this isn't just for women, this is for um, men as well, um, I think you have to be really honest about um, and have those open discussions about what help you need and, and when you need someone to take over something for you. So that was kind of <clears throat> good advice for on the personal level. Do you have any ideas how we could improve this on on academia, maybe how supervisors should do things, maybe the deans of the department, how, how could we do it on a, on a higher level? I think there's got to be a lot more flexibility in how things are done. And, and I can see this changing already. And, and in some ways, perhaps the pandemic has forced this change as well, um, where if you um, want to have need to have a supervisory meeting, you don't actually have to come in and meet in person. There's that possibility of having that online. So, you know, your child can still be there with you. Um, you can still be supervising them. Um, I also would really like to have um, the universities provide better childcare services uh, so people are able to, say, continue breastfeeding while they're still going back to work for um, actually uh, on campus and those sorts of things. I think we really need much better and more flexible childcare services too. Um, and possibilities of um, of working for home from home during school holidays, all those times where I found it really difficult to to get care um, for my children. Um, I think there's got to be a lot more work done in that to support um, parents in the workplace, in any workplace, but also in universities. Yeah, I, I think it's good that we have moved more for the video calls. It has many many advantages and. And I think we also need to change the culture that you don't need to have the camera on all the time. Like maybe you can do breastfeeding, put the camera off and and still you can can listen, you can contribute saying something when 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 you have, have time. And anyway, if it's more people in the meeting, I think it's kind of waste of time if everybody is concentrating fully when they can actually just do some some things at the same time and still be listening. People say that multitasking is not good, but we can we can do home course at the same time and still be concentrating fully, fully listening. This has been a very interesting talks with you about the technology, measurement technology, about the society and the upcoming conference, and also about these these tips for young young researchers and and women researchers. 
Uh, is there any any final remarks you would like to say before we wrap up the episode? No, maybe just from um, from my point of view at, um, with ISMPB, I think that there's huge advantages to researchers being involved with with a, a society like like ISMPB or whichever society really suits you. That really offers uh, opens those opportunities for collaboration, for furthering science, um, and for furthering research fields. And so, I would encourage people to be um, not just thinking of their own small um, world in research, but to look outside and become involved in 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 their societies. And and in case of your society, what? What possibilities there are to be involved, and how how people can learn about those, and maybe how to take steps to be involved more. Um, also, I, I guess coming to the conferences and and um, taking part in our various um, inter conference activities. So so perhaps you know we have um, workshops and so forth um, in between conferences that people are able to attend. But also, um, it's possible to be involved in the society um, by helping out on one of the committees. So um, we have our, our communications committee has a newsletter and and uh, um, and a, um, a, a social media group um, who tweet on our behalf. That's a way that particularly young researchers who are active in social media could be involved. Um, the newsletter is a way that people um, who have an interest in um, sort of writing um, could be involved in writing the quarterly newsletter. You can also become involved in the board as such. Um, and so we're currently having elections for board members and we have four positions um, vacant or coming up for vacancy um, at our board elections that will be held at um, at our ICAMPAM. Um, and so if people were interested in nominating for the board, um, if they were members of ISMPB, that's a, that's a way to become very involved in the society and the direction of the society. All right. So good, good opportunities. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. This was really nice talking with you and really great, great insights for, for many things. So thank you for taking the time for this podcast, Bronwyn. Nice to meet you, Ollie. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Research Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes. So be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.